It was about um, 18 months ago that I was having a conversation with Hans Dilbeck, who many of you uh, will recognize as the, um, I don't know what his exact title is, but he's the leader of the Baptists in Oklahoma. And he made the, he asked me a question over lunch. He said, do you ever think God would call you to ministry? And I said, I said the thoughts crossed my mind, but I don't know what uh, that would look like given my current circumstances. And and Hans said, I think he, I think he is, and I think you should talk to Owen about it. And so I went to, uh, so Owen and I went and had a lunch, and, um, and I was relaying the story of what Hans had said to me, and before I could get it all out, Owen finished the sentence. And uh, I wondered if he and Hans had had a conversation about it, and he said no, but he said he, he just wanted to affirm me. And so... Uh, now, you all may hear this and decide that both of them are way off, but, uh, um, but that's uh, what led to this. And I just I, I want to thank Owen because he's just been such an unbelievable encouragement. And I was, I was out mowing my yard last night, and um, uh, one of the things when we were, when we were uh, on Owen as a pastoral candidate that was so impressive was, was just how bright he was. And that's clear every time that, that we hear him uh, up in this pulpit. And I thought he's almost a scientist with the word. And, and the thought occurred to me that if, if Owen is Einstein, then I am probably the Muppet character Beaker this morning. <laughs> and uh, so I appreciate your, your tolerance and really the encouragement. I'm going to talk more about that as we get going. But we're going to be in Second Chronicles chapter 16 this morning. So if you want to go ahead and, and start to turn there. And I, I've been waiting all week to say this. If you're wondering where Second Chronicles is in your Bible, it's right after First Chronicles. Um, but if you will go to the, um, into Samuel, Kings, and, the, and then you'll get to Chronicles. And we're in Second Chronicles chapter 16. And uh, as you're turning there, uh, let me pray for us. Lord, no man can stand uh, in this place uh, apart from your spirit and be used by you. And so at this time, we pray that uh, that's what will rain down on this, on this room, on me, and on the people who will hear. And um, it's so humbling to be in your presence, and I pray that today we'll be especially convicted of just what a privilege it is for us to do that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was March 12th. I was in a hotel room in uh, Kansas City for the Big 12 basketball tournament, and we began to hear about basketball tournaments around the country starting to shut down due to this virus that had apparently come over from, from China. And um, the next uh, day, I was at, a, at a, a dinner for that event. Our tournament was still being played. And we got word during that dinner that it was not going to be played and that we would all be packing up and going home. So it's been about six months now that we've been in this, uh, in this COVID pandemic. And I was thinking about what an unusual time this is in our lives. And I've watched my own kids and, and wondered how they're dealing with this because I can't remember anything in my own lifetime and in my own childhood that was anything like this. And I think we probably could go around this room and most of us would feel that way. And as if that wasn't enough, we've had this, um, this amazing period of time where we've got this hot social justice debate 
We have political division like maybe we've never seen at any other time in our lives. Um, we've got reports of killer hornets. We've had hurricanes. Um, it's been an unbelievable six months in our lives. And it's been stress unlike we have ever known before. At least I think it has for me. And our, our family has fortunately um, not had the virus impact us at all. But, um, but so many other things, so many uncertainties. I, I work in a, in a world where if we don't play, people will lose their jobs. And I know that that's happened to people in our church. And I just thought, there's never been a time where it's been this stressful in my lifetime. And I, and I wanted to look in Scripture and see how does stress get handled by other people. And um, today we're going to study about a man who was a good man, who came upon a very stressful situation and didn't handle it very well. And in Romans 15, it, it tells us, Paul reminds us that what was written before was written so that we can be instructed, so that we can learn from it. And anytime somebody says that maybe we don't need to pay as much attention to the Old Testament, I get a little bit concerned because there's so much in the Old Testament that points to Christ, and there are so many great stories that lead us down the paths of righteousness that I don't know how in the world we could ever separate the two Testaments. And today is a great example of that. So we're going to study about a man today who did good things for much of his life, made a mistake, um, we can emulate the first part of his life, and then we need to learn from his mistake. And his name is King Asa. Uh, Asa was, uh, uh, and, and we'll talk about the, uh, the old kingdom, and I never want to assume too much, but Israel at this point is a divided kingdom. It's split into two different nations with two different rulers. So you have Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Ten tribes have gone to the northern uh, part, have gone to Israel. Two tribes, the tribes of Judah and the tri tribe of Benjamin, are in the southern kingdom, and it's, that's where the Davidic line is. So um, Asa is a king in Judah, the southern kingdom where the two tribes are. There were 20 kings that ruled in Judah during the time that the kingdom was divided, and only eight of the 20 would, were categorized as good kings, and Asa is one of them. He, so he was a guy that people had a high opinion of. He was the great-great-grandson of David. Um, and to give you some idea of... of how he was perceived. Let me read to you from 1 Kings chapter 15. It says, Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Like David his father, he also put away the male cult prostitutes from the land and removed all the idols which his father had made. He also removed Maacah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made a horrid image as an Asherah and Asa cut down her horrid image and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of the Lord, or I'm sorry, the heart of Asa was wholly devoted to the Lord all of his days. If Asa was among us, he would be serving dinner on Wednesday night. He would be a children's Sunday school teacher. He would be the first person at your house in the time of crisis. He was a good man. And at a, his two predecessors were bad people. So the things he had done do took some backbone. And he did it, and he stepped up, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Unfortunately, he runs into another period of, of difficulty in his life, and he reacts differently. And um, we find that in the first verse of chapter 16, so let's look at that. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Baasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and fortified Ramah 
in order to prevent anyone from going out or coming in to Asa, the king of Judah. Okay, that's one of those verses you would read over in Scripture and you might never pay another mind to it whatsoever, but you have to understand what is contained within this one verse. So the northern king who has been at odds with the southern kingdom is making an aggressive military move. And he has made the move to come out of Israel and come down to Judah. And he has taken a town that is only six miles north of Jerusalem. Not only is it close to Jerusalem, but it's high ground, which if you've studied military history at all, you understand that high ground is where you want to be if you're going to launch an attack. But his plan isn't necessary to launch an attack, at least not yet. His plan is to cut off the southern kingdom from the northern kingdom, but more importantly than that, he's cutting off the trade routes that come from the north down to the south, which is where Jerusalem gets much of its trade and much of its supply. So in effect, what you have here is a blockade or a siege where he's planning to cut them off, weaken them, and then take them. So that in, in and of itself is enough of the strain. But what about the man who is leading this siege? Baasha, the king of Israel. He did not come to the throne through regal means. He, he was not born into royalty. He did not ascend the throne as we often see in Scripture. He took the throne of, of Israel with a military coup. He is a ruthless, evil man. He killed his predecessor and then... He killed all of his predecessor's family so that there could be no more ascension to the throne out of that family. So here's what you have. You have a ruthless, evil king aggressively moving into Judah six miles north of Jerusalem, and Asa is the king, and he's watching all of this. I like to put things in present-day context Pretend for a moment that we're having a church picnic out here on our lawn somewhere and we find out that an enemy group is coming to attack us and they are arrayed for battle at I-240 and Western. That's this scenario. And even though back then it, you know, they weren't going to come by car or plane, six miles is not that far. So that's what Asa is dealing with. That's why you have to understand what, what kind of pressure he's under uh, in this situation. Um, and let's keep in mind his reputation as we start to wonder, how's he going to react to this? His, his country's got to be wondering, how's he going to react? We all look to our leaders. What are they going to do to respond? And we know if we read about him earlier in the Chronicles that he's responded well historically. 25 years earlier, listen to this. This is in chapter 14. If you want to turn back over just a couple pages, chapter 14, verse 9. Here's another military attack. Now Zerah, the Ethiopian came, Ethiopian, came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots. And that may have been a million men, but it's the Bible's way, it's the chronicler's way of saying it's a whole bunch. It's a big army. And they came to Marshah. So Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up in the battle formation in the valley of Zepathah at Marshah. Then Asa, listen to this. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one besides you to help me in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord, our God, for we trust in you and in your name have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are God. Let not man prevail against you. 
if you ever run into a period in your life where you don't know what to pray, if life starts to mount up on you, may I encourage you to highlight this prayer? Because you talk about submission to the Lord in a time of trouble. And look what God does in verse 12 of of that same piece of scripture. So the Lord routed the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Wow. Asa relied on God, and God preserved him and, and won the battle. And we see that time and again in scripture, don't we? Well, let's go back to chapter 16 and look at verse 2, because now, it's a quarter century later, what's Asa's reaction going to be? Verse 2, Then Asa brought out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house, and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, that's Syria, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me, as between father and your father, Behold, I have sent you silver and gold. Go break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. What is he doing? Based on the history we just read in chapter 14, where he relied solely on the Lord and won a battle against amazing odds, what is he doing? How did he do in a pressurized situation? When he should have cried out to God, he turned to the world, and he turned to himself. And maybe we can read this and ask ourselves, with the screws getting tightened on us quite a bit these days, how are we reacting? And I think there are four things we're going to find in this passage of Scripture, things that Asa didn't do, that we need to do if we're going to rely on the Lord and prosper in a time when the stress and pressure of this world may be unlike anything we have ever experienced before in our lifetimes. The first one is we have to be in prayer. That prayer we just read is amazing, isn't it? It's riveting how, how heartfelt it was. What keeps us from that? If you go and, and you ask Christians all across the country, what's, what's the area of your Christian life where you suffer? The predominant answer is going to be prayer. Now, some are great at it, and you, you admire those people, and you're thankful for them, but a lot of us would answer that question. We don't pray very well. And in situations like this one, I, I can identify with it. Your pulse quickens. Your palms get sweaty. Your mind starts to race, panic sets in, and what's the first casualty? Rationality. You start to do things out of panic and not out of reason and not out of the history of what God has done for you. Our eyes are on the threat. They're not on the rock. I once had a coach tell me this. We were talking about a a, a game. We are going into a game. We were talking about how the two teams matched up against each other. And he made a statement that I think is so true and when you if you worked in sports you would know exactly what i mean and, and as a if you're a fan you may you may get this too he said we always have a tendency to underestimate our team and overestimate the opponent that's true we always have a tendency to underestimate our team our talent 
and I don't mean individual talent, our collective talent, and overestimate our opponent. I think we underestimate God in these situations, and that's why we don't go to him. At a time when we should be seeking him like we, like we never have before, we think, you know what, this is the one time when it's so bad that, God, I better take care of it. And that's exactly what Asa did. For 36 years, he had been a faithful servant of God. And in the 36th year of his reign, he decides to, to shift course because this is the time of high stress and high pressure that he needs to handle because he's not quite sure God's going to be enough. The greatest time of stress in Scripture is found in Luke 22. There has never been more pressure on anybody in, in the history of this planet than there was on Jesus the night before he went to be crucified, not only because of the pain and the shame that he was going to endure, endure in a physical sense, but because he was going to be carrying the sin debt of you and me and everyone. It was a burden that we can't begin to understand. And Luke 22 says that, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. I remember one time I got back from Haiti and I told Amy a story about this young girl who was worshiping and these are people who were just dirt poor and she stood there and she held her heart and she swayed back and forth as we sang the songs and it was I'd been a Christian for many years and I was envious of her worship and I remember Amy made the I told that story to Amy when I got home and she said that's how you worship when Jesus is all you have That's how you pray when you realize that's all you have is the Lord. First time I prayed like that, I was in a pressurized situation. I got saved. The world was closing in on me, and I couldn't carry on the fiasco any longer of being a fake believer. And I just wonder why it is we don't pray like that more often. Psalm 100. 21 verses 1 and 2 says, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? Do we need help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That's genuine faith. When we understand who God is and we truly rest in him. I think the second reason we don't do it oftentimes is because we think God might act, but not on our schedule. Have you ever experienced that before? Where things are going tough, you think God might take care of it, but he needs a little help moving it along at a faster rate. How are we at waiting on God? How are we at waiting on anything? I remember the little girl in the musical Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Remember the song she sings? She's spoiled little brat. She says, I want it now. That's us. I tell the, uh, this story to a, a sports PR class that I teach because I want them to understand how much timing and appearances mean to people. McDonald's has something now that it did not have 10 years ago. And oftentimes if I ask that question, people, I'll say, what, what is it? And they'll go breakfast all day and I say, no, that's not it although that's, that is true. They have two drive through lanes. Most of us can remember when they only had one drive through lane. Why do they have two? Because they did market study. And they found out that if there were two cars already in the drive through 
that there was a huge percentage drop in the likelihood that you and I would stop and become the third car because we had deemed that too long a wait. So what'd they do? They built two drive through lanes. So what are the optics on that now? When you pull up as the second car in your lane, a wait that you've decided you're willing to tolerate, you may actually be the fourth car in line. But we don't like to wait on anything. We will pick up this little electronic device that fits in the palm of our hand while we're standing in Seattle and call Miami and be a little miffed if it takes a few seconds for that connection to take place. We're not great waiters. And I think oftentimes it's hard for us to wait on God to do things. This six months has been long, hasn't it? When's it going to end? You hear that all the time. When's this going to end? I think the best example of waiting in Scripture is Isaiah 40, 31, or at least the best definition of it. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They'll walk and not be weary. Those who wait for the Lord. Listen to what one commentator wrote about that and see if it fits this day and age that we live in. It is applicable to those who are in circumstances of danger or want and who look to him for his merciful intervention. Here, waiting properly refers to those who were suffering a long and grievous captivity in Babylon. So don't think that was written to people who couldn't assimilate. It was worse for them than it is for us. And he goes on to say, they had no prospect of deliverance but in him. The phrase is applicable also to all who feel that they are weak, feeble, guilty, helpless, and who, in view of this, put their trust only in Yahweh. That's waiting. And that's why we should be praying. I wish we could wait better. I wish this would be over. I wish this would hurry up. But we need to wait on the Lord. And I just want to say one last thing about praying. And it's a little bit of an admonishment. I remember during the pastor search here, we had a couple of prayer meetings, and we can draw really well for drunk or treat and for a youth breakfast, and I'm thankful for both of those. But if you call a prayer meeting, it's hard to draw a crowd. I always say that prayer meetings were maybe ahead of their time because uh, there was plenty of social distancing at prayer meetings long before we encountered any of this stuff. But church... We need to look at ourselves in the mirror when it comes to that. You know, Owen made a comment a couple weeks ago. He said, we're going to pray before we get started. And I'm going to confess to something. And I'll bet some of you did the same thing. Am I going to have to pray? Am I going to have to get in a group? There, there are some people who have personalities, and, and they're not like that. They're, they're looking around to see who, who all can together in. But a lot of us are introverted in that respect. And our first thought turns to, what's this going to be like? And think about that for a second. When Christ died on the cross, the veil was torn so that we might have access to the Almighty through the blood of Christ. We get to boldly approach the throne room. And our first thought is, I wonder what I'm going to have to do here. I mean, that's really, listen, I'm wearing this one myself. That's utterly sinful, isn't it? We need to pray. If God's going to deliver us, if he's going to give us revival, we've got to pray.
All right, the second thing. Let's go to verse 2. Then Asa brought out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to Ben-Hadad of Aram. Now my vision is he runs into the church, grabs up all the stuff, and, and runs back out with it. Um, there's no evidence that he stops for counsel. There's no evidence that he's walked into the temple for fellowship. None of that. He walked in, got the booty, and he bugged out to go find the king of Syria. Church has been hard for us lately, hasn't it? Aren't you thankful for a leadership that has made church remain relevant for us? I would say this whether Owen was sitting here or not, but it has been remarkable, the job they have done to keep us together. And I'm so thankful for that because I so much believe that we need to be here. Um, Andrew has grown up in this church, our young Andrew. We would come to Wednesday night dinners and Miss Sharon would hold him while we ate. He trolls the hallway out here because he knows that Coach Dub's going to have donuts in his classroom. He, he walks in, he's got a heck of a racket going. He hugs the, a lot of the women in this church. He gets cinnamon rolls. He comes back with cinnamon candies. It's amazing that what, he, what he hauls out of here. That's his recollection of, that's what his church life is, has been as a child. That's what he's growing up in. I remember when we found out we were going to have him, and it was a little bit later for us, and you would get two very distinct reactions. You would go, oh, man, you're going to have to do the ball game thing again. I bet you thought you were all done with that. But you know what you get in the church? You get to do the ball game thing again. Man, this is awesome. Your quiver is going to be full. Praise and thanksgiving for another child. Not a burden. Not an interruption. But a blessing. You can be well into a career of doing something completely different, have a couple men mention to you, you ever think you might go serve the Lord instead? And the people who live out there would hear that and go, what? You're going to do what? You know what you hear in the church? I bet you I got 10 text messages this week from people who wanted to encourage me, from people who go to this church. You don't get that out there. That's why we got to be here. We got to be together. We can't use the church the way Asa did. We got to come in here and we got to have church with each other. And I don't mean just in this building, I mean as a group of people. Some shouldn't be here right now, and I get that, and I'm not saying that at all. But you know what? That forces us to be more creative like Owen and his staff have been. It means more cards. It means meals dropped off for people. It means if somebody lost a job that we give more and more and more to the benevolence fund of this church so this church can be the church. There's a story, and uh, if here I am on military history again. I used to study the Civil War all the time. At Gettysburg, when the Union formed what would be the line that would win that battle for them. At one end of it, on the two little hills down there, little round top and big round top, they formed a fish hook. They were thin on that end of the line, but it was going to be crucial that they hold that line because if you lose an end of your line in the Civil War, they just run down your whole line and you lose the battle. And Gettysburg was the only thing that stood between the, 
the, Un the Confederacy in Washington, D.C., if the Union lost that battle, they were going to lose the war. They formed a fish hook on the end, and one of the things they were able to do on that fish hook was when one part of the line got weak, they were able to, because they were in this semicircle, they were able to pull men from over here and plug them in here. And then if it got weak here, you could pull men from over here. That's how I see the church right now. We, we have people who are going through rough spots. But God has brought us here as, as kind of his fish hook. And it's our time when we can step in and be helpful to one another. Church was established, Ephesians 4.16, the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. It causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself. So we need to be in church. Shouldn't take our attendance lightly. Um, when we're not here, it makes a difference. And uh, Asa was willing to forsake that when he got under this kind of stress. The temple was there, and he had honored the temple and all he did in this case was he runs in, takes the money, and leaves. He left behind a great resource. Okay, let's go to verse 4. So Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel, and they conquered Ejon, Dan, Abel-Maim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. When Baasha heard of it, he ceased fortifying Ramah and stopped his work then King Asa brought all Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with which Baasha had been building, and with them he fortified Geba and Mizpah. Okay, again, have to cover the geography here. Geba and Mizpah are north of Ramah in the northern kingdom of Israel. So what has happened here? This is an amazing victory, right? He, he buys off the king of Syria, who sends his army to attack the northern parts of Israel. Meanwhile, Israel, which is down here in the, in the south, trying to make life miserable for Judah, gets pulled away because of this attack from the north. The strategy worked perfectly. And not only did it work, it cost him a few bucks out of the church treasury, but they got back, the, they got back timber, and they extended the border north into Israel. Mike Fabares preached a great sermon on this, on this passage of Scripture, and he said, if you're wondering what the scene was in Judah after this happened, just picture Asa in the Oval Office of Judah with his sandals up on the desk. That's what has happened here. The third thing I think we can learn from Asa, be prayerful, be in the church. We have to be discerning. We can get pretty confused sometimes with, with God and country, and, and we have to preserve what we have. I'm not saying that at all. But by worldly standards, this would have been considered a success. But the discerning I knew from the beginning that it was wrong. He doesn't go to God. He steals from the temple. He makes a deal with a pagan king, and there were all kinds of things wrong with that in a military sense uh, from God's point of view. He incites a war between two countries. This isn't a success. It's an absolute train wreck. It reminds us that we need to be in the Word, and we need to seek wise counsel. Our purpose for being here is to glorify God through the spreading of the gospel. That's why we're here.
it would have made a lot more sense after we got saved for God to take us immediately to heaven if he wasn't going to leave us here for some purpose. And that purpose, I'm convinced, is to evangelize the world which glorifies God. I, I think about um, Paul. He gets thrown in prison. Now, if that happened to you and me, or at least me, I'd sit there with my head down between my knees, in despair, sad, wondering who's going to get me out of this mess. What did Paul do? Oh, good. Whole new batch of Roman guards that I get to witness to. Hey, Silas, let's sing. Because he understood what our job is. He had that kind of discernment. He wasn't lost in the fog of what's going on in the world and what looks like success to the world. He was focused squarely on the gospel of Christ and winning more people to eternity in paradise. And I'm active on social media. But I shut off Twitter this week, and can I just tell you, I have not missed it one single time. I'm happier, and I think I'm more focused. Because I'm not being distracted by all the noise, and boy, there's a lot of it right now. And I can really focus. When, when you know you're going to have to stand up in front of your church and preach, let me tell you, you do get in prayer and you do get in the Bible. But apart from that, it really made me stop and look at my own heart and say, what, what am I doing here? What has God called, not just me, what's he called all of us to do? Witness for him. Bring people to Christ. That's it. We need to be like the Bereans. We need to meticulously be studying the Scripture. We need to think about who are the teachers that we're listening to. I'm, you know, I'm thankful for Owen. I don't have to have that thought when he's here. But if I flip on the radio or if somebody hands me a book, I have to think about that. Who is this person? Can they be trusted? Are they going to give me the full counsel of God? We have to be able to see the world for what it is, and we have to understand that great Christian teaching is what will help us see the world for what it is. John MacArthur said this, and I want you to listen closely to this quote. The key to living an uncompromising life lies in one's ability to exercise discernment in every area. So he's talking about beyond the church, but listen to what he says. Failure to distinguish between truth and error leaves the Christian subject to all manner of false teaching. False teaching then leads to an unbiblical mindset which results in unfruitful and disobedient living, a certain recipe for compromise. Did you hear what he said? If you don't get it right with your Christian teaching, it leads to all kinds of unraveling in other areas, and you will eventually compromise. That's what Asa did. So, be prayerful. Be in the church. Be discerning. Asa didn't do that. And now the other shoe is about to drop because here comes the prophet in verse 7. At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, because you have relied on the king of Aram and not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. This is an oracle of judgment that, this, uh, that uh, the prophet is bringing to him. It's going to be an accusation, it's going to be a reminder, and it's going to be a sentencing. So here we go with the rest of it. Were not the Ethiopians, remember we read about them, and the Lubim, 
an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen, yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You have acted angry, or you have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. There's his sentence. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison, for he was enraged at him for this, and Asa oppressed him and some of the people. Asa didn't rely on God, and it came home to roost. The fourth thing that I want us to do, and this is the last, is be confident. Now, before we get into why, you have to be, why we can be confident, I want you to make sure that we read something very closely. Who escaped out of his hand? His battle's been with Baasha and Israel. And who does it say escaped out of his hand, according to the prophet? The king of Aram. Who? The king of Syria. Syria was the army that had dogged Israel to get them out of Ramah. It was the strongest military of the day. Do we see what happened here? Asa acted on his own volition without God and won a temporary battle to move his border a few miles. What God was going to do was give him Israel and Syria. During this time, have we wondered if we would get really, really faithful what God might do? We're worried about ending a pandemic. Lord, forgive me, I'm worried about can we play a football season? What if he wanted to just run a waiver revival around this world? What if we'd get down on our knees and pray for that? Matthew 6.33 is screaming at us, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Well, listen, we can be confident, because did you read verse 9? That's the most famous verse in this passage. The eyes of the Lord look to and fro across the whole earth that he might strongly support those who are completely his. That's what he wants to do. That is a common theme in Scripture. Hebrews 4.13, There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have to do. Psalm 33 from the NIV. Listen to this. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind from his dwelling place. He watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all who considers everything they do. God considers everything we do. Nobody had to remind him, oh, it's 2020, oh, this is the pandemic here. Nobody had to nudge him to let him know that there was job loss in this church. Nobody had to draw attention to the Gulf Coast so he could see the hurricane come on shore. He watches everything we do. We can be prayerful. We can be in the church. We can be, in, we can be discerning because we have the confidence of Lord God Almighty considering everything we do. Asa was a good man. Isn't it a bummer that this is how it leaves him off in Scripture? Five years later, he's dead. He's done. So like so many of the other men we read about in Scripture, he's flawed. Moses, Abraham, Noah, David, 
Paul called himself a wretched man. He wrote half the New Testament. All with a flaw. But there's one who lived a flawless life. And he's the one that considers everything we do. And if you know him today, Emmaus, brothers and sisters in this church, then I hope this man who missed the mark, we can meet in heaven one day and say, well, we read about your mistake, but we got better because of it. And if you don't know him, then the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. And these same truths that God watches everything we do and loves us and will preserve us and will give us victory, those can be true for every single one of us. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for being so into us and so slow to recognize who you are and what you want to do. Give us your lens. Give us a perspective of eternal life. Help us to live for you. Help us to see this world, not be distracted by it, but to see it and to hurt for it. And to carry the banner of your message to this world so that more people can be brought into your kingdom. More people can come to know the love of Christ. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.